Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Christine Ward and Jeff Oxnard as our two guests. Christine is the head of oncology and cell therapy, precision, and translational medicine at Takeda. And Jeff is vice president and head of clinical development at Foundation Medicine. And he's also a practicing oncologist. So today we're going to do a deep dive into next generation sequencing and precision medicine in cancer, where both Chris and Jeff are world leading experts. And they've got a partnership that they're going to tell us about as well between Takeda and Foundation Medicine to work collaboratively to develop liquid biopsy companion diagnostics for lung cancer. So first of all, uh, Christine and Jeff, thank you and welcome to the podcast. Christine, I was hoping you could just give an introduction to yourself and the work you do at Takeda to kick us off. Sure. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you all today. So I joined Takeda about two years ago to head up a precision and translational medicine group in the oncology development organization. And I I am a PhD immunologist by training and spent a lot of my time developing drugs outside of the oncology space. But then over the last eight years or so, I've made my way to oncology because of this very important topic today that we're going to discuss. Great. And Jeff, maybe you could give an intro to yourself and the work that you do at Foundation Medicine and in your practice as an oncologist. Sure. I'm a lung cancer doc. I was at Dana-Farber for about 10 years developing targeted therapies for lung cancer patients with unique genetic alterations and saw in my clinic the amazing impact that this had on patient after patient. And I guess I became a believer in the potential of precision cancer medicine and joined Foundation in Medicine about two years ago, really to broaden that impact beyond lung cancer to across oncology. So many patients out there can benefit of that combination of the right tests to help them find the right therapy. Maybe we could start there, actually. It'd be good if you could paint the picture of where were we 20 years ago, where were we 10 years ago, and then where are we today when it comes to genomics and NGS in oncology? So Foundation Medicine was founded over 10 years ago with a dream of building a test that would help every cancer patient get access to comprehensive testing. What do I mean? I mean, one test that covers the full cancer genome, all the relevant cancer genes that could drive a cancer, turn it on. What makes it think? And can we build then a platform so anyone can access that across different cancer types? That's been built now, and now it's done at scale. And the way you do it at scale is through a tool called next-generation sequencing. So the same quality, deep sequencing, rigorous, reliable results, very sensitive, uh, applicable to any clinical cancer specimen. And this has become now a reality, honestly, across the globe. I think back to 10 years ago where I was testing EGFR, I was testing KRAS, I was looking here and there for an individual gene for a given patient. And now over this past decade, really every cancer patient should be able to access a single next generation test to explain how their cancer behaves and thinks and, and how to get therapies. And Christine, maybe you could link that into the work that you all do in actually developing new drugs and treatments, because it starts with the diagnostics, obviously, but the two go hand in hand. So what, what's been the bottleneck to developing new precision therapies, and, and how has the advances in diagnostics that Jeff's talking about helped the work that you and the team do? It's been an amazing journey since some of the first molecularly targeted therapies were launched, many of them in lung cancer. and the paradigm in drug development has changed completely, particularly in oncology. Many years ago, it was about developing better chemotherapies, 
things that debulk the tumor. So we would study our drugs in very broad patient populations. Now, when we develop a new drug, when we're getting ready to go into the clinic, we first have a, a detailed dialogue about what is this patient? How are we going to best study it so that we can see the best effect of the drug as we're developing it? And now with a lot of these targeted therapies, targeting point mutations and very specific molecular pathways in, in tumors of interest, we're now building precision approaches very early in development from the very beginning. So what does the typical lung cancer patient's journey look like? And I know it's hard to describe the typical journey, but today, where does genetic testing fit into the journey? And, and after that's done, how many different routes are there, depending on the results of that test that might influence how, how a patient is treated? Let me explain to you a patient I met about a year ago. A patient presents a, a palpable tumor in the skin, sick with a lung mass, bone metastases. The patient has squamous cell carcinoma on histology, which is a, a histology that's not as associated with genetic, uh, genetic changes that are targetable. The patient has a, has a heavy smoking history, and that, that would suggest a more complicated biology. But I, I've told you I'm a believer in genetic testing. And I send off for this patient a liquid biopsy when I first meet him to say, I just feel like I can figure out something about his cancer if I just look. Um, by the way, the patient has an Asian background, and, and, and that actually is associated with EGFR mutations. This patient has an EGFR mutation detected on this blood test, despite many things about his case not saying that this cancer should have an underlying genetic change. And instead of sending him down a path that would have been brain radiation, chemotherapy, maybe bone surgery, I started him on a pill. And his cancer melted away. I just saw him actually a couple of days ago in clinic. And it is amazing the durable benefit he's had to this pill therapy. And he's living well. He has very few symptoms. He has very few side effects. He's taking a once a day pill. And so I've changed the story for him from radiation, chemotherapy, toxicity, and honestly, unreliable, less durable benefit to more durable benefit where I'm saying, man, a year in now, this could go for years more and could be tied to the next generation of therapies after that. Resistance therapies, clinical trials, right? So, so doing well enough, you tap into the progress that's ahead. That story is repeated again and again across so many different genetic subtypes of lung cancer. ALF, RET, BRAF, HER2 now, KRAS now, et cetera. Each of these drugs with a slightly different characteristic, variable reliability, and, and every success story becomes the basis for further research and improvement. And so the first generation ALK inhibitors are blown out of the water by the, the, the latest ALK inhibitors. And the first generation FGFR inhibitors we're just finding are being surpassed by the next generation FGFR inhibitors that are just emerging, et cetera. And so as a lung cancer doc, I see that opportunity in clinic every day and, and, and want to make every oncologist able to see the, the potential in every patient able to potentially benefit from it. I do think, however, that the questions are getting more complicated. And I'm asking questions about, okay, I want to give this patient immunotherapy. Do I want to give them combination immunotherapy? Do I want to give them immunotherapy with chemotherapy? There are complicated questions docs are asking. I like complicated questions. That's an opportunity for precision diagnostic to help them solve how to right size the therapy for this growing array of, of exciting but complicated therapeutics. Maybe we could talk about how that pill that you described, the cancer melting pill, actually works for people who aren't as familiar with the new generation of therapies. What's what's going on there that's different from chemotherapy, radiation, things that people are probably used to hearing about for many years? 
I'll try that first from the oncologist perspective, and then I'll let Chris speak to the the um, pharmaceutical perspective. Okay, we're looking for what drives this tumor. We're looking for an on signal, and that on signal could be a single mutation, could be a complex arrangement of genetic changes or rearrangement. Uh, it, there are various ways that you can detect an on signal, and what then biologists cancer scientists in the labs prove is how that on signal leads to growth and how blocking it leads to non-growth. And see so what you're looking for is really a, a precision way of taking the pedal off the gas without causing additional toxicity, therefore maximizing benefit and minimizing side effects. Yeah, and building on Jeff's response, when we're developing these, uh, what I call small molecule inhibitors that block patients, we're bringing in a lot of uh, modeling and, and different approaches to try and dial in the, the uh, activity of the drug while minimizing the side effect profile. And many of these drugs are delivered intravenously. I think the holy grail is for, for many of these drugs to be delivered orally so that patients can take them at home. And to, in the point of lung cancer, lung cancer is becoming such a precision space right now. I think to Jeff's point, it's really challenging oncologists and patients to be demanding their molecular profile up front. Um, we're very lucky to live in a country in the U.S. where access to molecular testing is fairly broad. And so it opens doors for patients to know up front if they have an ALK mutation and could benefit from one of the ALK inhibitors. And if we took the big picture of patients who get tested, patients who maybe get tested but not early enough, and then patients who don't get tested at all. What does that picture look like today? And obviously, I think we all agree that we want to live in a world where everybody gets tested early and can be put on the right path. But where does that look like today? And, and what are the big barriers to having universal access to a, to a genetic test or set of genetic tests that could help to guide treatment? I would say adoption is variable. Um, in some parts of the world, testing is just a very local thing, right? And so it's really you and the test that's offered by your local hospital and your local hospital, you know, there has some some reliability and maybe they catch the common things or maybe they're designed for for the most the, the most prevalent ones. And, and they miss some of the rare ones. I think increasingly there around the world, there is access to more scalable solutions. For example, Foundation Medicine has a tissue NGS and a liquid NGS test that are both FDA approved in the U.S. and in Japan with CDX indications across a broad range of cancer types. And so now that you know, this really shows how next generation sequencing across a full cancer genome is more and more widely available. I think access to Chris's point is there now, especially with blood tests. I mean, anyone can get NGS, you just send off the blood test. So it's not necessarily just access that's, that's impeding people. I, I will also say with FDA approval, there's widespread payer reimbursement. And so these should be accessible. What is the impediment? And to some extent, it is belief that this is going to turn over a stone that will be fruitful for the patient in front of me. It's the willingness to apply it broadly, even to patients who might be sort of borderline cases like the one I described to you before, and yet still uh, through testing might benefit. It's patients advocating for this. And so what we see is there are some patients with no testing, often those are in cancer types where guidelines have not adopted the need for genetic testing. Okay. There are other patients with cancer types where genetic testing is becoming more common, but we're using single biomarker or local tests that do a couple genes, but maybe not every gene. Okay. And then we find that there is a solid 
30% of cancer patients at this point and growing who are accessing a comprehensive test and in doing so, creating a space for their own therapies and for the drug development that Chris just described and being a candidate then for the next generation of trials. But to your point, getting that test late in your cancer journey means that you may not have the same time to benefit. And so what we are trying to do is dial those back to being accessible and available when you first meet that cancer patient. And that both that's logistics. How do we make that fit into the workflow of a doc so that they can get it done quickly? And it, yeah, it's, it's uh, building those workflows uh, into their infrastructure and into their ecosystem, EMR integrations, so that it really is immediate. The first time you meet that cancer patient, you send them potentially change their journey. Yeah, and over the years, I think one of the biggest barriers to accessing genomic testing was awareness that the tests were even available. Second were the cost, I think, of genomic tests and genetic tests. It was, it was outside of the reach of many, many, many patients. But because of the advances in the technology, um, the costs have come down to a point where now um, I think it's fairly standard practice for insurance, at least in the U.S., to reimburse it. In Europe and other areas around the world, the reimbursement challenges can be quite significant. And so it's kind of it's pushed towards what Jeff just mentioned, these smaller panels of tests where maybe all of the mutations are not profiled. And so I think we're in, in this next wave of uh, oncology treatment um, excitement and advances. I think ensuring that a patient, a cancer patient, has access to these genetic tests to allow them to get that complete picture of their cancer so that they and their physician can make the best treatment choices is really going to be critical. And I want to echo that. With FDA approval, Medicare covers comprehensive NGS. Okay, that's that's you know certainly the vast majority of lung cancer patients right there. With with FDA approval of liquid biopsies, Medicare covers liquid biopsy NGS testing. Okay. With with FDA approval and a companion diagnostic, which is this partnership tying together a test and the associated utility in the eyes of, of the FDA with a regulatory framework with a companion diagnostic, there is a swath of commercial payers who now say, great, we pay for companion diagnostics. And so uh, with NCCN guideline listing, a whole nother barrage of, of commercial payers are on board. And the NCCN guidelines are rich with genomic alterations across cancer types that are, that are right there, guideline listed as being a part of cancer care. So bit by bit, yes, we are blocking down the barriers. If there are the final barriers, to some extent it is education and belief to make sure that oncologists come with us on this journey from the old way of taking care of cancer to, to the opportunity ahead of us. And this is also pulled through into the development space as well. I, one of the things we're doing now in a majority of our studies is we are including genetic and genomic testing to help us really dial in where these drugs are working. And, and there's a number of good examples there. Yeah, because Chris, I guess with, with you and your team, there's a couple different value adds here. One is if you've got treatments already approved that can help patients, we want to make sure everybody's getting tested for that. But you also have a little bit of a catch-22 in clinical trials where if patients aren't getting tested, it's hard to find people to treat with the potential next generation of medicines. And if it's not being paid for, then it's hard to find patients for trials and the cycle continues. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, and the flywheel effect that's created when you have good diagnostics in the, that are delivering medically actionable results, but then you can use that to 
bootstrap the next generation of therapies through through trials? Yeah, there's two dilemmas. One is around when you're studying a really rare mutation, how do you enroll a clinical trial to study that mutation, right? Do you take you know, three, five years. I mean, every day patients are waiting for access to these therapies. And so for us, in addition to just, you know, working with clinical centers, screening patients, we like to work with patient advocacy organizations that treat these particular, you know, patients with these rare mutations may go to. And there's databases now that are that are emerging um, where I think the long-term vision is as these databases of patient cancer sequences emerge that we can say, oh, wait, there's patients in that database that meet our criteria for our trial. Let's invite them to participate along with their physician to see if, if they would be interested. And I think that's really the holy grail as we dial in the, these precision therapies is the old way of just patient comes in for clinical trials, screen the cancer, or maybe by chance their physician had developed this. It's a combination of the screening as well as these databases um, of patient mutation profiles. There's one more additional opportunity there, which is, so now you've described the prevalence of testing that creates an apparent prevalence of a population, right? That population presents then for the trial of interest and the clinical trial says, great, to get on the trial, I need to test you again to make sure you're really biomarker positive using our clinical trial test. And that creates an additional redundancy that's a, that, that means, honestly, our tests out there in the clinic in patients aren't meeting their potential value. And so we're trying to get around that also. We have a new solution called data piping, where if you present to a clinical trial with your foundation medicine report, which is the regulatory basis for this drug development paradigm or path, you can then automatically, sort of electronically with consent, get that data from your commercial testing beep, 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 into the clinical trial data set to then be the clinical trial assay for the basis of enrollment as well. So there are all sorts of ways that we can reduce barriers and increase efficiencies if we just identify, as you described, each block along the patient journey that, that gets in the way of them becoming a trial candidate. How, how big of a challenge is how quickly the technology is moving relative to healthcare providers and oncologists that may not have been trained up on the newest generation? I know many are attending conferences and getting up to speed quickly, but it's hard enough for us spending time doing this every day to keep track of all the advances. How, how do you see the uh, pace of which we need to update the training of clinicians and oncologists and, and also the community at large to keep up with the pace of technology. Is that a factor and a, and a barrier here as well? What we struggle with at Foundation Medicine is uh, how to report in an effective way that captures the usefulness, right? And that meets the provider where they are. Understanding that the provider is a diverse group of physicians, right? Including academic docs who don't want all of the bells and whistles. They just want, you know, give me the gene. I know exactly what you mean, right? And others who really are looking for the full rich utility explanation of what does this mean and what exactly should I do? And and then the, the other challenge in, in this diversity of users is how they interact with the test result. There are some who are committed to their fax machines still, and we are trying to bring them along to the world of the future. And others who are like, if it's not on my phone, 
uh, I'm not going to see that, right? And so how do you meet that diversity of providers? And, and, and then layered on top of that, what you described, which is each of them with their, with their educational gaps. I think it's an opportunity. We're just re-envisioning how we report. We're launching a new digital report experience that's much sort of cleaner uh, and built for, for right there in front of you on the computer and with everything leaping out and, and, and sort of less... PDFness, you know, moving away from the, from the world of faxes, yeah. but you can't eliminate that. You have to still maintain the, the 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 fax version for the docs who are doing that. While you bring them into the world of ordering and resulting online, um, as I mentioned, Epic integration and, and other EMR integrations is a huge part of that as well. That's ongoing right now. Meet them in the system that's in front of them, but that has its own other challenges in terms of how does your report then come to life within the framework of an EMR, which tones everything down and conforms it to certain uh, guidelines. I think that's, in addition to that, is in the partnership with teams like Takeda to say, how can we then team up to educate around the opportunity, uh, which is, is its whole nother uh, opportunity. I guess, Chris, I don't know if you want to speak to how, how you guys approach the, the education gap. Oh, it's huge. When we develop drugs targeted to things like Alkany, GFR, like Brigatinib, Imobacertinib, we realize that it's just as important to support the patient testing aspect as it is to support the drug aspect. And so we have we develop a lot of resources. Uh, some are on our website, but also through our medical affairs organization, um, physicians can reach out, particularly maybe a physician in the community that isn't doing the molecular testing every day, where they can reach out to our medical affairs division and ask for guidance about what, how do I find these patients? What what tests do I use? And how do I interpret the results? All of that. So we provide a holistic um, support to patients and caregivers. And one example of that is is for, for rare EGFR mutations. Okay. If you are using the technology of 10 years ago called PCR, looking for the common EGFR mutations, right? That That will be designed to say, maybe look at the top 10 or 20 common EGFR mutations. And in doing so, maybe you've got one or two exon 20 insertions in that mix. But there is an insane diversity of ways in which the EGFR kinase domain changes mutationally. I mean, even foundation medicine is evolving and accommodating a new variant, updating its reporting, you know, the new 100, 200, 300th way in which the EGFR kinase can turn on. And so if you are using the technology of 10 years ago, you're finding a small slice of patients who are candidates for mobocertinib, right? Versus if you are using NGS, you actually have that full description of, of EGFR and you can find actually a, 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 certainly, you know, many more patients able to benefit from the drug. And so how do we educate around the evolution of technology that, that evolves to, to then meet the opportunity of the new therapy? And this is where also the scientific exploration, even beyond after a drug is launched, because we may have only allowed certain mutations into a clinical trial, right? And that's what the drug is labeled for. But then over time, we develop uh, data to better understand the spectrum of all the mutations, perhaps an EGFR exon 20 for a drug like Mobisertinib, where the drug could potentially work. And if uh, we often get reach outs and questions from uh, physicians about whether or not will the drug work for this particular EGFR exon 20 or that, and then we provide that data and information. And we, of course, get this information out through publication and, and scientific conferences as well. I wonder if, if also we could, we touched on this earlier, but maybe Jeff, you could explain the difference between a liquid biopsy and a tissue biopsy, because I'm, I'm realizing that 
many people will know, um, but many people won't. And it would be really helpful to maybe explain this platform shift because I think it's really important and exciting. Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking. Uh, so when you got a great tissue specimen, you know it. Your pathology, your pathologist gets the specimen from the surgeon. They say, this is a great specimen. We should test this one, right? It goes to foundation medicine. The pathologist look and say, this is a great specimen. And, and we test it, okay? And what I've just described to you, to some extent, is a chain of custody that goes from the proceduralist to the local pathologist to the foundation medicine pathologist to testing. And that process ensures the rigor of the result and makes sure that that result is definitive, the reference truth. Okay, and and the problem of that process is is logistical burdens along the way, which is that you know I, I am actually quite lucky at Boston Medical Center where I see patients. When I ask for NGS, it is out the door the next day. Okay, and like that you know the pathology is a great part of the team to to implement. Uh, but there are other centers where there's there's a greater disconnect between the oncologist and the pathologist where or sometimes you're, you're looking for a specimen that's archival they have to go find it or the specimens of low quality and in fact just the journey of a pathology specimen to go from i want ngs to i get ngs can take weeks and then at the end it's inadequate it it, it uh it's too too, too scant for testing and that's dissatisfying to the oncologist user and by the time they get the result back they, they throw up their hands and say, never mind, let's just do chemotherapy, okay? And so is there a world where we can develop a diagnostic that meets the accessibility and immediacy of, of, of testing? And that's the idea of liquid biopsy, which is I see that patient in clinic, the one I described to you, I, I know he has a dangerous cancer. And so I need to get something out the door, get the blood sent out, um, and that blood goes out. What's in the blood? Well, there's little molecules of, of circulating tumor DNA, okay? often less than 1% of all the DNA. It's not in the cells. This is in the cell-free component in the plasma. And this tiny amount of DNA can be sequenced with very exquisitely sensitive technologies with exquisite error suppression. So you get a very clean signal-to-noise ratio so that you can actually genotype that cancer patient. And a cancer patient sitting in front of me who has an aggressive cancer actually has some confidence that their blood is going to have enough tumor DNA to get a meaningful result. And so I can genotype them. And the journey of that specimen is next day in the lab, right? A whole turnaround time is eight or nine days, okay? The caveat being, maybe there's no DNA in the blood. And if there's no DNA in the blood, that means that I can't trust the negative and I need to then confirm that with tissue testing. So it is pragmatic, accessible, appealing, but with caveats that there might be a false negative. Great, thank you. Perfect overview. And Chris, I was wondering if we could talk about your so Takeda, for those who don't know, is comes from roots of a rare disease company. Has always has been and, and is today, I think. But we often think of cancer as a common disease. But of course, we've talked on this show a lot about how really most common diseases are are just rare diseases masquerading as common symptoms that align around something we call a common disease. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that rare disease approach to treating patients in general, developing drugs for patients in general, and in cancer as well. What about the disease actually makes it a rare disease uh, rather than a common disease? Yeah, it's all about the prevalence. How common is is the disease state, the mutation, the... Yeah, and I'll be honest, the developing drugs for rare diseases is a cultural mindset as a company. 
And one of the things I think that's really, uh, that you'll find in most companies that develop drugs for rare diseases, they tend to be very patient focused, just like Takeda. You know, patient centric focus is part of our company corporate values. And we do have a rare disease division that's spun out of, you know, we acquired Shire Therapeutics a number of years ago, and we have a very robust rare disease um, portfolio. But the mindset also transitions into oncology as well. It's, it's, yes, we love lung cancer because it's, there's so many patients. We're going to be able to tease apart all the different mechanisms. But, you know, if we really want to meet the patients where they are, we need to be studying these rare mutations. And that's a, that's a commitment that Takeda has to patients. And where are we at today in terms of the, the landscape of lung cancer? If you were to bucket it out into this percentage of patients gets, gets, you know, we're doing great here. We don't need to necessarily focus as much, but this percentage over here, we really don't understand what's going on. How, how far along are we? Are we seeing most of the iceberg or are we still seeing a, a really small fraction of the iceberg in terms of progress there? Ooh. Jeff, what do you think? I mean, we're, I feel like we're at the, at this pivotal inflection point where we realize there are all these mutations, but there's still so many, pay- I mean, a lot of the therapies are targeting, you know, less than, you know, 30% of patients. And I still think we have a ways to go. Lung cancer, particularly, hundreds of different diseases. We, we have about nine different biomarkers that are NCCN listed right now with FDA approved precision therapies. Some of these are complicated biomarkers. Uh, Medexon 14 splice site variants that, that lead to alternate splicing and skip an exon. I mean, th- these are really complicated alterations. When I first heard of that from Matthew Myerson, I was like, that's not an oncogene. Come on. Oh yeah, it's an oncogene. There are multiple FDA approved therapies for it. Okay. And and these are complicated to detect. Basically they need NGS. Like it's, co- you cannot genotype a lung cancer just to keep up with NCCN guidelines without having an NGS test that can do all this. And I think that is is an opportunity, right? Where now it's clear you can't get away with A, B, C, D. You have to do it all in a package to give you the story. And I, I think that will open up the next phase of therapeutic opportunity. I do think our next biomarkers are difficult biomarkers. Exxon skipping, rearrangements, genomic signatures, like how do we get TMV to work? We, we have a new signature, an HRD signature, which, which tries to look across the genome at HRDness. I would love to get that to work in lung cancer, right? And so how do we figure out how to query the genome really in new ways to untap the next therapeutic opportunities? The opportunity is there, um, but there are still a chunk of patients who are facing chemotherapy when they first get diagnosed with lung cancer, and we haven't solved how to find an opportunity uh, or an alternative for them. And so the, the, the pressure remains to, to solve the next round of therapeutics. And what about other, other omics? I'm interested to hear from both of you all as we start to look beyond understanding the genetics of the, of the tumor, uh, how important is transcriptomics, proteomics, do you think these are a big piece of the missing puzzle and, and we should start to focus on them now? Or actually, is there so much still to learn about the fundamental genome of the cancer that those are the next decades problem interested to hear your thoughts on how much we need to now start to build multiomic test panels versus really the the genomic landscape is still there's still a lot to be figured out yeah i think i'll i'll start with this one when we develop drugs in clinical trials we run the clinical trial once right we don't go back and say oops we should have measured x y and z 
And so all these different technologies become critically important, not just to study the patient population, but the response to the treatment, the, the development of pharmacodynamics, so that looking at pharmacodynamic biomarkers to help us understand if the drug's having the desired effect, to help us pick a dose, the right dose for patients that balances safety and efficacy. And uh, we're putting a lot of these technologies in our trials because the field moves so quickly. We can start our trial today. We may not have data for three years. By then, there could be new publications that come out that, that elucidate this drug mechanism. And if we haven't collected the sample, say, looked at proteomics or like ctDNA is, a, is also like a perfect analogy because the technologies are evolving so rapidly, increasing sensitivities, identifying these mutations in more and more patients. It's really an exciting time because the field is moving so quickly. But I think also what Chris is separating is the the tools that we use for research and the tools that we use for clinical care, right? And I, I don't dispute that there is a, a barrage of research tools out there to, to understand a drug. And I, I was, I had the joy of playing with all those tools in my days in academia, right? But to some extent, I, I, I left for the world of diagnostics. I wanted to, to focus on those tests that would see the light of day and actually meet the potential and make an impact for cancer patients, right? And I don't know that all of those tools are getting there, right? If we talk about liquid biopsy as being the tool that opens up access to NGS to the globe and really has that potential. It's, it's like infrastructure free. All you do is send out the blood test, right? That is because there is something magically about, magical special about cell-free DNA that is stable and scalable. And there is, it's not clear there's any circulating RNA it evaporates instantaneously. It's not clear the circulating proteome is queryable and not being not not sort of distractible with the rest of the of the the, the human tissue that, that that leads you astray, right? And so certainly one of our experiences is we hear from from drug companies who have focused their development path on a single IHC biomarker, but no one tests for that biomarker, and they're pretty sure no one's going to start testing. And they're like, do you guys have a genomic alternative that can get people? access its therapy. And so let's make sure we think about diagnostics that can scale to the need. And I think liquid biopsy is a great example of that, right? It is accessible and pragmatic. And so that's why I, I do believe we need to get the most out of our genomics because of its potential to really touch patients everywhere. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Patrick, another thing that's very interesting right now, there's a number of therapies that are in development targeting the interferon pathway. And really, one of the best ways to study this is through um, interferon RNA pathway RNA expression. But for the points that that um, Jeff pointed out, RNA is very labile; it, it gets munched up. It, it's we have to collect it a certain way so it actually can make it to the lab for profiling. And I think the challenge is to be able to convert it to a more stable biomarker if, if it turns out that it's going to be able to. Um, guide treatment for patients in the future. One example of that is epigenetics. Pretty clear that methylated DNA is stable, scalable in the tissue, in the blood. And so certainly we're looking at methylation as an orthogonal way of trying to get at some of these signals. And, and, and definitely we're looking at methylated cell-free DNA as, as one of the, the coolest ways to try to get at those kinds of signals, Chris. And is on that point, are you all thinking about some of the next generation of sequencing technologies like Gox for Nanopore or other long reads that can get you the DNA sequence and the methylation all in a native read or or is it you know is what you're doing Jeff today still on Illumina short read platforms how do you think about that technology shift that's happening underneath us right now 
uh, I'm in clinical development, so I'm thinking about the tests that are living in, in, in cancer patients, to be clear, right? Um, but totally, there's a whole research apparatus trying to think as sequencing platforms evolve, can they meet the opportunity? Will they have the same rigor? Um, will they have the same quality? Like, let's be clear, we were very familiar with the quality and the fantastic error suppression that Illumina platforms provide, right? And so that, that's just the bar that any new sequencing technology needs to meet. The, 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 the bar for research is, is a certain bar, and the bar for scalable global care is another kind of bar. Um, and so let's make it clear what we demand of these technologies. But no question, we need to be prepared to adapt to that world, uh, assuming that they, they, they live up to the potential. Great. And yeah, Chris, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Otherwise, I've got a, a closing question that I'll leave you all with just to um, just to give everybody something to think about. But were you going to add anything to that? I just was going to add that I think a lot of the, the spatial technologies, while they're not necessarily long read, I just want to highlight them. The ability to take a piece of the tumor and profile different elements of the tumor microenvironment from a research point of view to better understand that tumor so that as drug developers, we can look at it and figure out better ways to target it, I think it is, is part of the future to new therapies. Yeah. So, so to close out here, I'm, I'd love to hear from both of you all, if we look forward over the next decade, if, if the past decade was about the development of really the foundation to, to play on words with foundation medicine, the foundation for precision medicines in oncology, what does the next decade look like? What are you most excited about? What do you think if we, if we were to have this conversation in 10 years, we'd be maybe most surprised or, or pleased that we managed to get done in that period of time? I'm excited of a world with more therapies and how does that press and pressure our diagnostics, right? I think that as a lung cancer doc, you're always thinking, I'm going to run out of tools. And so what's the rush to pick the next one, right? But in a world with more therapies, um, there is more pressure for diagnostics to tell us quickly, am I on track or am I off track? Should I switch? Should I stay, right? And there's more nimbleness to oncology. That's exciting. Um, and so how do we build tools that enable that nimbleness in the clinic so that you can try out the therapy that the patient wants to try out first and make a switch to the next one? Um, that kind of nimbleness creates a right-sizing of, of approaches, right? What, 10 years ago, when I finished training at 10 plus, you know, the rage was adding to carbotaxol bevacizumab so you could have three-drug therapy in lung cancer, right? And then we evolved to more precision therapies, and we've evolved back to three-drug therapy for a lot of lung cancer patients, and that's combining chemo and immunotherapy because I'm just not sure which one I should use, so I'll pile them on. And the pile-on approach is happening more and more in oncology, and that's a little bit dissatisfying to me as an oncologist. And so can we extract therapies and, and, and use diagnostics to figure out which patients need more due to perhaps aggressiveness of their tumor, levels of shed, which patients can get away with less. And so how can we figure out a world where some patients are doing great on less therapy, right? The home runs on immunotherapy and other patients who have more aggressive signals are getting the next generation of ADCs, et cetera. And that's both, of course, an advanced disease and an early stage disease, where I'm sure MRD tests will help with this ability to more precisely guide the right patients to the right level of therapy for their cancer. And building on that theme, I think we're, we're at a point in oncology treatment where we're seeing more and more cure 
and I believe, I personally believe that the that the future to achieving cure for more patients is by identifying the cancer early, right? How do we identify the cancer early? Do we wait until somebody goes for, you know, a screen? Obviously, it's screening, very, very important. But I live for a world where once a year, everyone gets a blood test. And in that blood test, there are remnants of cancer genomes in there. And then we can quickly identify which patients have which mutations and develop the right treatments. I think we're a little further away, but it also take for the technologies and the tests, I think, to be to, to, for patients to be able to have those tests at an affordable rate that and have their primary care doctors even be able to, to get there. And so I think it's in our in our grasp. It's up to us as drug developers and, and diagnostic developers to work together on this and to really tailor our pipelines. But that's that's the world I, I live for. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think we're probably gonna need orders of magnitude better sensitivity of the tests, right? But I, I'm completely with both of you on that. But I think it'd be very exciting if we can live in a world where early detection is 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 a real and scalable possibility and also for cases that escape that early surveillance mechanism we've got a menu of choices to uh, to apply and not just not just a couple of of hammers and having to see everything as a nail and one other point i just want to make on that is the endpoints in clinical trials then become very important you know most of our endpoints are around objective response what's the impact of the drug on the tumor on progression free survival overall survival one of the trends that we've been seeing going after these patients with earlier disease and looking at the impact is minimum residual disease impact on ctdna are patients who maybe are negative for ctdna living longer all of that and i think the way we design and do our clinical and conduct our clinical trials is going to be is going to have to match this the technology advances as well. I think that's an important multiplier amplifier, right? If we can accelerate the trial process through better use of molecular response to figure out which drugs are working through getting the right patients on drugs, if we can really get these tools that Decatur developing taking on across the, the ecosystem, that also is very much a multiple of our efforts and creates more therapies and even more energy towards progress. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you both. I really appreciate your time today and also all the, all the great work you're doing for the community. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode. If you liked it, then we'd love for you to share it with a friend, share it on social media. And of course, please leave us a five-star review or however you feel on your favorite podcast player. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>